Amen. Welcome again to Sunday night service. I'm so excited that you've joined us and I'm excited for our passage tonight as we dive back into the book of Malachi in our series Wake Up Call that we've been going through here at Sunday night service for the last few weeks. Well, on just about every single product that you buy, there's somewhere on the back or a label attached to it, there's a warning label on it. And like 99.9% of the time, those warning labels make sense, right? It tells you what to do if the product gets in your eyes, what to do if your kid happens to take it and swallow it or, or something that makes sense. But there's, there's some warning labels that you read it and you're just like, man, I wonder what the story was that made them to they now have to put this label on this product. So a few funny labels for us that are on warning signs, warning labels on products. The first is this on a chainsaw, a chainsaw danger. This is on the box of a chainsaw danger. Do not hold the wrong end of a chainsaw. Now, Unfortunately, there is probably some person out there somewhere with a really mangled hand that learned that the hard way. And I think if you don't know which end of the chainsaw you should be picking up, you probably should be hiring a professional rather than yourself. But be careful which part of the chainsaw you get. Another one, and this was on a letter opener that in the fine print, it says this safety goggles down this down at the bottom there, safety goggles recommended because we all know when you're home from work and you go and grab the mail before you open it, like you, I also put on protective eyewear just in case I slice my eye open while opening the mail with a mail opener. Or this one, which the product says on the bottom, use only with adult supervision. Now you may get from what's kind of on the side here, this is a cereal bowl. Because we all know that it is extremely risky for any child to ever use a bowl without direct adult supervision in their lives. Or there's this product, which down on the product, it says this, this product moves when used. Caution, this product moves when used. Well, that label is attached to a scooter. Like, I wonder what gave it away that the warning label that like maybe the wheels, does that give it away? Like, obviously this product moves or this one, this warning, which actually was on Apple's website many years ago when the iPod shuffle first came out. I love that second thing that it says there, do not eat your iPad shuffle or iPod shuffle, excuse me, do not eat your iPod Shuffle. Now, I still remember, you know, it was almost 20 years ago now, I think, when iPods came out and they were cool and they were new, but it never crossed my mind that they would be something edible. But there's a story there, right, on why that label had to be put on them. And even though warning labels, warning signs may seem like obvious things, they are there for a reason. They want to caution us because a mistake has been made by someone else and the repercussions of it were bad. And so the person does not want, the company does not want you to make those same mistakes. Today's passage, as we look here at Malachi chapter 2, are kind of warning signs for the Christian life. 
And my hope for us as we look at this passage and what the prophet speaks against the people of Israel is that these would be warnings for us, that we would learn from their mistakes and that these labels would be put on our hearts and our lives so that we wouldn't go down the same road that these people went down as the prophet calls them out and holds up a warning sign for you and for me. So we're going to jump right in. Malachi chapter 2, starting at verse 10, says this. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. Now these verses help us see this first warning sign that that they missed that is for us to be taken seriously is this, is to take God's word seriously. The first warning for us is to take God's word seriously. Now, this passage here in verse 10 starts out talking about how we all have one father. This word has already been used for God back in chapter 1, verse 6. It's not arguing here that this is not an argument for universalism, right? Oh, we are all just children of God and God is all our father. No, this is a passage specifically to the people of Israel, God's chosen people, who he has clearly called himself like a father to them multiple times throughout history. It's significant also that he starts his address by himself as a father. And we're going to pick that up actually on the third point and why that kind of comes back around. But as addressing himself to Israel as their father, he's reminding them again that they, Israel was to answer and to be devoted to God alone. They were to be devoted to him alone. He was the one to whom they were to answer. But instead, they have been faithless. They have been faithless to one another. This word faithless is the the theme word, the key word that, that carries itself throughout this entire passage. So how has Judah, how have the people of God been faithless? It says that they have profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. Now that often that word can refer to the temple, but here as it does in other places in scripture, the sanctuary of the Lord is kind of a a metaphor for God's people and God's land. The whole gathered people of God have been profaned by Judah who God loves. And how have they been profaned? This last phrase, get it's because they married the daughter of a foreign God. They married the daughter of a foreign God. And so what this first warning that he is addressing to the people of Israel is this, this idea of intermarriage with the people around them. Now he is specifically here addressing religious intermarriage, not ethnic intermarriage. 
That confusion has made a lot of people when they come and look at scripture because so often in the ancient Near East, your ethnicity and your religion kind of went hand in hand. They went together and ethnicities were often kind of grouped in as being pagan people. And so the scripture here is not talking about religious marriage. It's, it's not talking, or ethnic, excuse me, it's not talking about how one ethnicity should not marry another. In fact, there's tons of examples throughout Old and New Testament of that happening, of God approving and God blessing. One of the most prominent examples is Ruth in the Old Testament. But if you know the story of Ruth early on in Ruth, it talks about how even though she was from Moab, she gave up her God and took on and worshiped the God of Israel. And so what's happened here, and it's clear here, marriage to a foreign God, the daughter of a foreign God, it's talking about inter-religious intermarriage. And so what's happened here is this has gone throughout the whole people of Israel up to even the highest levels. And we know this when we look over at the contemporaries of Malachi. If you're going to look at Nehemiah, Nehemiah, especially in chapter 13, talks about how he had to address this issue. In the book of Ezra, in Ezra chapter 9, which these are both books that take place after the people have returned back to the land after exile. In Ezra chapter 9, this is seen by the people as the most urgent need that Ezra needs to address is the intermarriage of people all the way up to even the priests themselves are doing this. This was something that they took seriously, that, that, that God's word spoke to, that God takes seriously. Look at these words that, that they were profaned, an abomination. In fact, Ezra takes it so seriously that if you look at the book of Ezra, the closing section is naming is calling out the people who were guilty of intermarriage with others. Now, this specifically goes against what God had commanded his people. Right? This idea that, that you're, you weren't supposed to marry people who worshiped foreign gods because that would influence your own heart, your own life, and lead you away from worship of the true God was clear, was so crystal clear in scripture. They only had to look at Exodus, at Leviticus, at Numbers, at Deuteronomy. It's in all of the books of the law. You shall not do this because it will lead you astray from God, from his word. But the people didn't take God's word seriously. They lived their lives how they wanted to. And it's a caution, a warning to you and to me to take God's word seriously, to learn from their mistakes and for us to take God's word seriously. I think what may have happened for these people and what's tempting for you and for me today is to follow our feelings instead of following our faith. To follow our feelings instead of following our faith. See, sometimes our feelings may tell us to do something. Our feelings may tell us to go a certain place, to lead to a certain someone. But as followers of Jesus, we are not to be controlled by our feelings, but by our faith in him. In fact, I would remind you of this, and you know this is true in your life. You know this is true in other people's lives, but we forget it often when we're in the midst of it. To don't trust all of your feelings. 
Don't trust your feelings. That's not an accurate guide for living your life. Just because you feel something doesn't mean that's what God wants you to do. So we need to take God's word seriously in every single way. And so I just want to ask us tonight, ask you tonight, only you know the answer to this question. Is there anything in God's word that you aren't taking seriously? Is there anything in God's word that you aren't taking seriously, that you are ignoring? That you're saying, well, you know, that's not really that important of a command. You know, like, I kind of want to do my own thing when it comes to this area of my life. When it comes to my financial life, I don't want to have to be generous and honor God. No, this is my, are we taking God's word seriously? Are we taking God's word seriously when it talks about our sexual ethics and the standards that God has us to live to? Are we taking God's word seriously in areas like, like gossip, in respect of authority? In so many different areas, God's word speaks. And I just want to remind us tonight that we are always to take God's word seriously. These people did, and the command was clear. They walked away from it, and it was an abomination to God. The passage continues. Verse 12 says this, May the Lord cut off... From the tents of Jacob, any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because no longer, he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. The second warning here in this passage is this, is to take worship seriously to take the worship of God seriously. And what had happened here for the people of Israel is they had fallen into two traps of worship of God. They made two dangerous mistakes, which they got from the idol worship, the pagan worship that was around them. And that impacted their attitude towards God. And the prophet here calls them out on this, right? The, The first idea is this, is that when someone was to bring an offering, to the pagans' gods. It was an understanding of this. The pagan gods actually needed something from us. And it's interesting, right? And this is true of almost all pagan gods of the religions back in the day, is that they actually needed the food that the people were to bring and offer as sacrifices, right? And so because these pagan gods needed to eat, you would then bring food. It's what is called, it would be something like quid pro quo, right? Being this, now I've brought you something, so now you owe me. I've brought you a sacrifice, and so now what I ask of you, this foreign God, you now have to give it to me because of what I have done for you. This God is obligated to give me something in return. This attitude had permeated the worship throughout Israel. So it became how they started to worship God. And so often this attitude can permeate our own hearts and our own lives to think that God owes us something. I just want to remind you tonight, God owes you nothing. God owes you nothing. Nothing you do, nothing you say, no sacrifice that you may give, can you then bring before God and say, ha ha, God, now you owe me. Now you have to do something because of what I have done for you. 
I read a story a while ago of R.A. Torrey, who was the senior pastor of this church like 120 or so years ago, a long time ago, he was the senior pastor here. And he spoke at conferences all over the world. And he recounted a time where a man came up to him and said, can you help me? I don't understand why God's not answering my prayer. And he said, well, well, tell me some more. And this man began to list off all the things that he had done. He said, well, I've been a deacon and I've taught Sunday school and I go to church. And he says, all these things that I do, and I don't know why God doesn't answer my prayer. And Ari Tari responded, well, well, maybe it's because you think God's going to answer because of what you've done for him. He's, he's saying, it's almost like you're treating God like, well, God, if I do enough, you owe me an answer. See, worship of God is never to get God to give us something. We worship not to manipulate God. We worship out of gratitude for who he is and what he has done. God does not owe us anything. And we need to get that thinking out of our lives. The second dangerous attitude that had permeated Israel, first was that God owes us something. The second is this, is this idea that if I have enough emotion, then I will get a response from God. If my emotions can manipulate God to respond to my request. Notice there in verse 13, there's the, the words for weeping, for groaning. They're, they're there with, with multiple words describing this kind of overt emotionalism that they had brought in on display before God, that they had clearly gotten from pagan worship. The, the most famous example what, that I think of when I think of this idea of emotionalism is the show off in many years earlier of the prophet of God, Elijah, with the prophets of the pagan god, Baal, on Mount Carmel. And the offerings were set. They were to call down fire from their God and see who the true God was. And if you remember in that story near the end of it, it, it talks about the, the prophets running around screaming hysterically and just going absolutely nuts to try and get their God to come because they believed that the more emotion that they picked up, the louder they were that eventually their God would respond. This attitude had crept into Israel and they thought, well, if I just go to worship and I get that, that nice little tear, maybe, maybe lots of tears, then that's, that's what God wants. And now God has to give me something. Now, there's nothing wrong, obviously. There's nothing wrong in worship if you are moved to tears. Emotion is a part of what God made us to be as people. But when we start to use emotion as a tool to try and manipulate God into answering us, we've lost sight of worship. What God wants in worship is not just an emotional response of us to him, thinking that then it will get us something. That's not what God wants for us. We shouldn't use emotion like how kids try and get something from their parents, right? That they have a strategy. They're going to send one kid to this parent, the other kid to that parent, and they think they can get it. But the parents are sitting there and they're like, man, we know what you kids are doing. Like we see right through this. And it's the same wave with us when we try and manipulate God with our emotions. He sees right through it. Worship is not a, a way to get God to give us something. God doesn't owe us anything. It's not a way for us to just be emotional and then God will respond to us. 
But in worship, God responds, sorry, we respond to who God is and what God has done. We respond to who God is and what he has done. It's an overflow of gratitude from the heart. It's not just a way to get something. And if we think worship is about getting something from God, we've missed it. We've missed it. And we need to take worship seriously. It's to honor and praise God. It's not about getting anything for myself. The passage continues then, verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking godly offspring? So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This third warning here that we need to take seriously that they didn't is that we need to take marriage seriously. To take marriage seriously. And this is throughout this passage, this idea of taking marriage, this this God-ordained covenant and institution of marriage, to take it seriously and honor it as God would have us to do. Now, I told you, right, as we started, that word father is going to come back to be significant. So the reason that it's so significant that this whole section here starts with addressing God as father is this. Back in their culture, in their time, It was the responsibility of the parents, namely the responsibility of the father, to find a spouse for their child. And often years before children were of any marrying age, there had been already agreed upon thing by two fathers that their kids would become married. This sounds so foreign to some of us as Westerners, but even some today in some cultures would be like, Oh yeah, that's, that's very normal. And so this was a very normal thing. But the idea in that time, in that culture, was this, that the father determined who their child is to marry, right? That was just one of the responsibilities of the father. The father has the domain, the say over marriage for their children. And so that's kind of getting in, leading into this idea that God has oversight. God has the right to tell us, his children, about marriage, And so divorce here is the topic in this passage. And what had been happening is this, is that these marriages had been, had been arranged, had been entered into. And then the spouse in this context, almost always men would be like, you know what? I'm I'm kind of done here with this person. I, I don't, I don't really like this person anymore. I'd rather go, this person over here looks better. This looks more exciting. This person, for, for whatever reason, they would leave their spouse and go to one another. This passage is not addressing every nuance of divorce 
in scripture. It's not talking about divorce in cases of unfaithfulness or abuse or anything like that. So he's addressing a specific audience on a very specific kind of divorce where just men would get up and leave just because they wanted to and for no other reason alone. That's important for us to understand in the context of what this passage is trying to say. And so in bringing up this idea of marriage, it talks about in verse 14, that God was witness between you and your wife. Now this is the word witness for us is like, oh, so like, would God be the one who signs the marriage certificate? Like, it's just like witness is like a third party bystander. But in their time, when a covenant was made, the witness was one who was the enforcer and guarantor that that contract would be taken out. That he was the one who would enforce and make sure that this covenant, this promise was followed through on. So God is the witness of this. It talks about the wife of your youth, not necessarily because they had gotten married so young, but again, that idea of these, these things had been arranged possibly and probably since the kids were very young then talks about how though she, at the end of verse 14, you have been faithless to her, get this verse 14, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. That word companion in scripture almost always is descriptive of male friendships, of two men in friendship and relationship with one another. And the reason it's highlighted here is what God is saying is you're looking down upon this woman. You're being unfaithful to her when she is your companion. What he's saying is she is your equal. She's not less than you. You do not own her. She is in no way inferior to who you are just because you're a man and she's a woman. She is your companion. She has full equality before me, just like you. God elevates the woman in this position. He talks about how, how horrible a thing is that they are leaving their wives just because they feel like it. This, this phrase at the last verse in verse 16 talks about how he covers his garment with violence. It's kind of an expression that we would use something like he has blood on his hands, right? Like his mistake is evident and it is seen to all. And God looks at what his people are doing. They are treating marriage, the covenant that he has given them, and they are treating it so casually and wanting to leave their spouse for no other reason than just, well, well, I'm not getting along. This thing over here looks better. And, and casting people aside that they are not taking it seriously and they are not a reflection of what God had wanted them to be. See, they had missed it. They miss it that faithfulness to a spouse is an act of obedience to God, right? Faithfulness to your spouse is actually an act of obedience to God. And faithfulness to their spouse was meant to be a symbol of God's faithfulness to them. Marriage faithfulness for the Israelites was meant to be something that stood out from the culture around them. The, the sexual ethic, the marriage relationship that Christians, that the people who follow God has always been different than pagan, than the world cultures around them. And they were meant to look different, not as a testimony for their like self-will, like we can stick it out, we can stay. No, they were meant to look different as a way to point to how great their God was. Friends, today, in 2021, in the United States of America, 
Couples who take marriage seriously, who take those covenants that they made to each other before God seriously, stand out in the world. And I want to encourage you, if you're married tonight and it's going through difficult times, take it seriously what God has called you to. Get help. Don't give up. Don't abandon. Don't walk away. For those of you who are dating or, or thinking about marriage, maybe it's in your future, whether that be in the near term or just in the hopeful for you. Take it seriously. It's not a casual thing like our culture has made it that you can just leave. Go find someone else if you're unhappy. No. God's word says this is meant to last because marriage faithfulness is a reflection of God and it points people to our world, to him in the midst of a dark world. What would it look like if the divorce rate amongst professing Christians was so drastically lower that people around us who are broken, whose lives are falling apart, whose marriages are falling apart, started to look and say, I, I, I don't know what's going on there, but I want that. I need what they have. I need that in my life. My family, my relationship needs what they have. We're to take marriage seriously because it should demonstrate to the world the power of God in our lives, the faithfulness of God to us. We should stand out in a dark and confused world for this. So these warning signs pop up that Israel had missed. My prayer is that we don't miss them, that we would take God's word seriously that we would take worship seriously, that we would take marriage seriously, that in the midst of where God has placed each and every single one of us, that as we do, as we honor him in these things, that our light would shine bright in the darkness and people would see Jesus through our lives. God, we do thank you. We thank you that you have called us. You've set us aside to be your own. God, I pray that we would take seriously these warnings that we see so clearly laid out in scripture. God, not for our own sake, but so that you would be glorified. So you would be honored in this world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.